this morning. Father, we thank you for, um, for being a great father to us. We thank you for being that great model. And we pray that uh, those of us who are dads in here, we pray that you would continue to use your word to shape us into um, the image of Christ. Would you pull us away from the patterns of the world, the patterns of how our dads behaved, the patterns of what we think a dad should be, and conform us to what you say fatherhood should look like, what it looks like to be a husband, what it looks like to be a man, and for all of us in here it applies, what it looks like to be a Christian. We pray that you would use your word to shape us, Help pull us away from preconceived notions and into the authority of your word. Give us guidance by your spirit to honor it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know that those of you who are savvy enough have already looked ahead to see which passage we're going to be in because we're going through Mark. And if you looked ahead to see the passage we're going to be in, uh, right at the top of Mark chapter 10, you probably saw a rubric, a little heading that said, Divorce. What kind of Father's Day message is that? But I think if Jesus were in charge of the rubrics, at that heading, he might have put marriage. And a sermon on marriage for Father's Day? Yes, please. We need that. I realize that the topic of divorce is addressed in Mark chapter 10. That is the issue that is brought to Jesus, but the issue that Jesus wants to focus on isn't so much divorce, but on marriage, and we're going to see that. And I also realize that we have a mixed group in here. Some of you, I know your story. Some of you, I don't know your story. But we have people in here that are looking forward to be married. Some young people that are still in the phase of, that's the last thing I want to think about is marriage. Some of you in here are married, but it's your second marriage or third. Some of you have been married, you're not married now, and you're not sure what the next step is because the first one failed. Some of you are in marriages now, and every once in a while, you think maybe going through the door of divorce will just get you out. It would just get you out. I'm hoping that today's passage will help us understand marriage better by looking at the topic of divorce. But before we go to Mark 10, I think we need to make a pit stop in Deuteronomy 24, because otherwise we don't understand what the controversy is in Mark 10. So what are we after here? We're after all of the questions that swirl around in our minds and our hearts about divorce. When is it okay? Is it ever okay? If I've been divorced, do I carry that stigma for the rest of my life? Uh, what are the reasons for divorce? Are there exceptions? Are there no exceptions? Um, these are the kind of questions that are going to be addressed in the passage today. If you need a Bible, lift your hands and we'll bring one to you. The book of De Deuteronomy, 
is fifth in the lineup of the whole Bible. So if you start at Genesis and go five books in, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then we're in chapter 24. Right at the top of chapter 24, Moses, from, from God, is giving his laws concerning divorce. Here's what the paragraph says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, I don't know how else you take a wife, but it's very thorough. You take a wife and marry her. If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, like I said, very detailed. Did you put it in her hand? Right? He writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, the second man that she marries hates her now and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, he didn't hate her, he just died. There's the end of the second marriage. He dies who took her to be his wife. Then her former husband, the first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I don't have 30 minutes to unpack this passage because this passage is not the text on tap for this morning. But I just want to make a few brief comments. Surely you will still have questions about it. You're still going to have questions about Mark 10 after we're done because I realize it's Father's Day, we're going to leave, and I'm not going to give you two hours. That wouldn't even cover everything. But let me just thumbnail sketch a few points here. One thing we realize is that the law concerning divorce is not a law demanding divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her and, if he, she find, and she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate, not if he finds indecency in her, you shall write her a certificate. You see that? You shall not commit adultery. You shall not kill. It doesn't say you shall divorce a wife for indecency. It's assuming that divorce is already happening. So what Moses is doing is providing a law to control this crazy thing. You've got guys that will divorce her. She moves on. Something happens in that second marriage, and he's like, yeah, my bad. Let's get back together again. He wants them to think, if you're going to write her a certificate of divorce, it's over, buddy. Because this is not a society where a woman can float around, be single, become a CEO, start her own business, get an education, vote. No, no, no. If you want to survive and get an income coming in, you find a man to marry. So it wasn't a question whether she would remarry. Of course she's going to remarry. But you want her back. Because maybe you issued that divorce too quickly. Maybe you were just in a, in a phase. Maybe you were thinking about some other chick. She dissed you now. Now you want to go back to your first love? Shouldn't have divorced her then. Because now it's too late. None of this round robin stuff. It's over. 
So, one thing we notice is that it wasn't commanded. Another thing we notice is that this is for the protection of the woman. You don't just drop her like a bad habit. You better think twice. And you better have something to put in writing. And you better put that writing in her hand. Don't leave her guessing as to what the status is. And so there's an official process to be had here. Now, this text became, not surprisingly, a source of great controversy. Is <laughs> uh, nothing new. Divorce has always been controversial. And in the Jewish uh, schools, the rabbinical schools, you had two major schools, the school of Shammai and the school of Halal, and they had two different understandings of this passage, this paragraph we just read in Deuteronomy 24. You'll notice if you're using the ESV, it says uh, in verse 1, when, he, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if she finds no favor in his eyes, why does she no longer find favor in his eyes? Why does he want to divorce her? Because he has found some indecency in her. Okay. What does that mean? Some indecency. What does that mean? They took this to be well, if this happens, then you can get a divorce. That's not exactly what Moses was saying. Moses was saying, when that happens and the guy does the divorce, here's how to do the divorce. He wasn't saying, here's your out. But that's how they took it. And so their question was, how do you define some indecency? Now, the school of Shammai said, you know, the, the Hebrew word behind indecency is literally nakedness. And so it must have something to do with unchastity. It must have something to do with committing adultery. It must have something to do with sexual unfaithfulness, some sexual immorality that has betrayed me because of the word indecency. But the word indecency, just because it's the word, originally the word is actually nakedness, it's used for all kinds of things that have nothing to do with sex. In other places, in Deuteronomy, you don't even have to leave Deuteronomy to see that the, that word indecent doesn't always just mean sexual. And so the school of Shammai said it's unchastity because of the word indecency. The school of Hillel said it's anything indecent because it says some indecency. Some translations may say indecency in anything. So, one school says you can only divorce if there was sexual unfaithfulness. And another school is saying, you can divorce if there's any kind of unfaithfulness. And one portion of uh, rabbinical writing famously put that you, the woman can be divorced for spoiling a dish. Right? That was an indecent dish you just gave me. That's not decent. How could you possibly put that in front of me on a plate? Some indecency, any indecency, anything that he perceives to be indecent. She's not pretty enough anymore. That's not guesswork. That's also found in the rabbinical writings. I don't favor her anymore. That look is indecent to me now. And so you have these two schools arguing with each other. Now, interesting to note, and maybe this is a little more than you asked for, but 
it's interesting to note when we're wondering, indecency, is that adultery? Some have brought out the point that in Deuteronomy 22, if a woman or a man is caught in adultery, what would happen to them? Anyone know? Stoned to death, right? The death penalty. So some would say indecency can't mean adultery because she would be dead, not divorced. This must be some lighter form of indecency. Maybe. But Deuteronomy 17 also tells us that in order for the death penalty to be enacted, you need at least two or three witnesses. You can't, you can't just you know, show up to the judges and say, hey man, I caught her. You did? Yeah. Any other witnesses? No. And then kill her? Another protection for the woman. Okay? You can't just be killing women so you can remarry. And if you don't think man's unregenerate heart can get dark enough to do that, you haven't been around long. Without these checks and balances, man's heart is stony. Man's heart is unable to feel what God feels because it's not been regenerated. And in this society, there's many unregenerate hearts. And man left to his unregenerate heart will abuse women. So God needs to speak because men are twisted and wicked doesn't mean that women aren't twisted and wicked. It just, it's exposed in men more because in the history of mankind, men have been in the position of power to abuse the ones not in position of power, and women would be in that latter group. So, you can imagine a scenario where the man knows that she's committing adultery, but he can't prove it with two to three witnesses. Maybe he only has one witness. Or maybe he's the only witness. So he can't issue the death penalty, but he, he, he's not going to stay stuck in that marriage. He's divorcing her, and so this passage reveals that. So it's very plausible that the indecency here is talking about adultery because it's hard to imagine what else really is it. She wasn't sexting. What else is it? So... One school is saying it's sexual unfaithfulness, it's she's committing adultery, and so he can divorce her. No one disagrees with that. The disagreement was, can there be other reasons as well? Other forms of indecency. There was nobody back then that would say, not even, not even adultery should be an issue. That was the given. Adultery was the given. The debate was the other school that said, it could be anything, food, looks, clothes, tired, bored, bored of her. So, in Mark chapter 10, this passage is used to try to catch Jesus in a trap. Which school is he going to back up? So, let's fast forward to Mark chapter 10. Many of us, if we had a chance to ask Jesus just some of the most burning questions in our hearts, maybe some of us would bring up the topic of divorce. Pastors argue about it. Anytime you go to a church, if you're divorced, one of the first things you're going to want to know is, how are they going to treat me? Am I always going to have the big letter D hanging around my neck when I come in here? Churches vary on the issue. 
In some churches, you can never be a pastor if you have a divorce in your background. You can never be an elder if you have a divorce in your background. It's the sin that never goes away. Even if it wasn't his sin. It's a divorce on the record. You're done. Famous institutions, I'd give you the names. You would know them. You trust them. Agree. D on your record, you're out. So we have this question burning in our hearts. What do you do with divorce? What do you do with this issue? And so in this, this day, you had these two schools arguing against each other. Some see it excuse for adultery. Some see it for more than adultery. Let's pick it up at the top of Mark chapter 10, verse 1. And he left there, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees, here they are, the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, Pharisees would be in that second group of seeing many reasons for divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In typical fashion, Jesus doesn't give a yes or a no. So verse 3, he answered them with another question. What did Moses command you? Interesting that he says, what did Moses command, when we saw that Moses didn't command divorce, he regulated it. So he's he's almost laying the, the table setting the table for a discussion about what is commanded and what is permitted. But they don't go for it. They see that it's permitted. In verse 4, they said, Moses allowed. See, they caught it. They're good. Pharisees aren't idiots. Morally, they are. But they were sharp, sharp minds. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, write. And that was because of your hardness. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment, the commandment to do it the way that Moses said to do it. But from the beginning of creation, so now he says, you're talking about Deuteronomy, I want to talk about Genesis. You want to talk about divorce, I want to talk about marriage. You want to talk about what ends it, I want to talk about what is it that you're ending? Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. There's the quote from Genesis. Then it continues. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You ever think about that move from leaving mom and dad to clinging to your spouse. Think about that. How many sets of parents do you get in this world? You get one set of parents. Who decided which parents are going to be your parents? God did. Even if you were adopted, it was ordained by God. You didn't choose it. So your parents in this world are not an exchangeable commodity. You're given a set of parents. Now, in the ideal world, these parents nurture you and raise you and they shepherd you to be a Christian and a disciple, and they are all you have. 
They're your mom and dad. You don't get a different mom and dad. These are the mom and dad that God has given you. And in the ideal world, you have this one mom and this one dad that usher you into adulthood. And then when you marry, you break this bond that's kind of unbreakable. You leave mom. Now, how many moms do you have? You have mom. This is why we do Mother's Day and Father's Day. We honor the fact that there's not thousands of them. They're a precious commodity in your life. It is given by God, not chosen. It is given by God. And you might say, you know what? You're not a dad to me or you're not a mom to me. I don't like you anymore. You can say that, but guess who your dad is? The one God ordained to be your dad. Now he's saying, you shall leave, you shall leave father and mother because you're replacing it with another insoluble bond. Do you see that? However irreplaceable mom and dad are, that's how irreplaceable your spouse is. In fact, it's raised a notch. This is why you have to leave mom and dad because this supersedes that prior bond. Why does it supersede it? Because as close as you are to your mom and dad, as much as your mom and dad love you, you're not one flesh with them. But when you join with this woman, when you join with this man, you become one flesh with them, that is a bond. Who makes that bond? Who creates that bond? Who binds it? God does. We don't see it. It's not a physical binding, but it's a spiritual reality. It's as real as someone being saved. Are you saved? How do you know? Well, there's signs for us to pick up on it, but we don't see it. There's no signs floating above our heads that say, I'm saved, and then someone else, the light is out, and then you know they're not saved. But just because there's no exterior sign doesn't mean it's not a reality. And so the bond is there because God makes that bond. This is Jesus' point. You want to talk about Deuteronomy. I want to take you to Genesis because you guys are hemming and hawing about Deuteronomy 24, which is a a commandment of allowance for hard hearts instead of asking, if I didn't have such a wickedly crooked heart, what would be the ideal? And that's what Jesus wants to get at. Because when I regenerate your heart, I have a standard for you to follow. And it's not Deuteronomy 24, it's Genesis. So, marriage is a one flesh union between husband and wife, between the male and female. This is why the one flesh union It's not consummated when a piece of paper is signed. It's not consummated when the couple says, I do. It's consummated in the sexual union. This is why Paul can tell tell, uh, the Corinthians, you know, don't you realize that if you uh, have sexual relations with a prostitute, you become one with her? We have such a distorted view of sex. It's just something, yeah, it's intimate. Yes, it's important. But it, it, you know, it's just not that big of a deal. We watch movies with stuff in it. We listen to songs that describe it. 
You walk through the mall, there's pictures of she's already halfway there with you, and it's just a picture. We're a highly over-sexualized society. We just keep downgrading it. And Jesus wants us to see what it is. It's a binding, and it's a one-fleshing. The world won't tell you that. The world will tell you, use and abuse the other partner to feel good. There's no oneness happening. That's a lie. That act is meant for two people, a man and a woman, who are consummating a one-flesh union. It's not meant for boyfriends and girlfriends. It's not meant for one-night stands. So he returns them to what marriage is. He returns them to the idea of the one-flesh union. Now, as you're reading through this, you might see that something is missing from a more familiar passage when we read Matthew's account. Matthew and Luke both record this debate and Jesus' answer, but they have some different details. Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of cover the same territory, but only Matthew provides the exception for divorce. When Jesus talks about divorce, in Matthew 5, he says, unless there's the Greek word is porneia. You can guess what that word means. It's the word from which we get porn, pornography. Porneia is sexual immorality. Graphe is writing, writing about sexual immorality. That's where we get pornographic material. So in Matthew 5, Jesus says, if a man divorces his wife, except for porneia, he causes her to commit adultery. In other words, if it weren't for pornea and he divorces her for something else, um, then that's a different situation. So many have seen Matthew 5 as Matthew provides an exception. In other words, if you divorce her and there wasn't pornea there, you're divorcing her wrongly. But if you divorce her and there was pornea there, then you're not divorcing her wrongly. So then the question that bugs pastors especially is why in the world does Mark not put it there? Why doesn't he give us the exception? Jesus just says, don't separate it. They, they want to know the question, the answer, the answer to the question, can you do it for any reason? Is it lawful at all? And he says, go back to Genesis. It's not meant to be broken up. So don't do it. That's his answer. It's like if we didn't have Matthew, there'd be no excuse at all. There'd be no exception. That has driven me mad. Anytime I've been a part of a wedding where there's divorce in the past, there's always a slight lump in my throat because of that question bugging me. If we didn't have Matthew 5, it would be plain. Divorce is just straight up wrong. It doesn't matter what the, there's no exception until I looked a little more carefully at Mark. Mark likes to leave details out that are explicit because he's, he has a high view of you as a reader. And you remember back when uh, we talked about um, Peter's confession, Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus makes it clear and tells Peter, the only reason you confess that is because God removed the blindness from your eyes. Matthew says it. Mark doesn't say it. 
What does Mark do? He puts the next story of Jesus healing a blind man. And you're supposed to figure out, oh, the blind man is representative of Peter. It's, he's saying the same thing. He does it implicitly. Matthew is just like, look, some people just are not going to read real hard like this guy. Right? And it's going to take them a while. So I've just got to put it explicit. So how does Matthew, Mark communicate the same message implicitly? Verses 10 through 12. Jesus has this harsh saying, don't divorce. God put it together. God put the marriage together. He sealed the union. It's one flesh, so don't let man separate it. And then in verse 10, typical disciples, amening it, hollering. They're, they're, they're hashtagging it while Jesus is saying it in front of the crowds, and then when they get together in the house, they're like, I don't, I don't get it. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So think about the logic of that. A guy divorces his wife and after divorcing his wife, marries another woman And because that divorce wasn't legit, because that union hasn't been separated, it's still a union, when he sleeps with the next wife, then he commits adultery. And that severs the union. Where people get tripped up is they want to know, is remarriage the problem here? Remarriage isn't the problem here. The invalid divorce is the problem here. How do we know that? Well, it wouldn't make sense if the reason for the divorce was adultery. Look at it again in verse 11. And imagine we insert adultery there. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife because of adultery and marries another commits adultery. The reason why Mark doesn't say it is because it's implicit in these lines. Everybody agreed adultery was a a break issue. The question wasn't, is adultery a break issue? The question was, are there other things? How far can we go? And Jesus is saying, stop asking how far you can go with something that shouldn't be. So one reason I think that adultery does, is an exception for divorce, it's not because of all the things that a spouse can do to you, of all the ways that a a, a husband or a wife can fail, adultery is just the top one. We can think of other things. As, As painful as that is, we can think of other things that might hurt more or cause more damage. Why is the whole thing centered around adultery? Because adultery breaks the one flesh union. Jesus is saying, don't separate this union unless it's already been separated. So his point is, if you write a certificate on paper, you're divorced, but you have this one flesh union. You just didn't like her cooking. You just found someone younger. She's just as boring to you now. You guys have irreconcilable differences. Check that box. That covers everything else. We just have differences. When you marry that second person, and consummate that marriage, 
Now you committed adultery. Because in God's eyes, that was still a one flesh union. Adultery is not an exception because it's just the one offensive thing. It's an, it's an exception because that's what adultery is. Adultery breaks the one flesh union. So Jesus is saying in the house, in private with the disciples, he's saying, yeah, if you divorce your wife and it wasn't about adultery, you just divorce your wife. When you marry the other person, now you've committed adultery. You're not free to sleep with that next woman just because you wrote a piece of paper, understand? The second thing we want to notice is just like Moses, Jesus is not demanding divorce. Nowhere here does Jesus say, well, yeah, if there's adultery, definitely divorce. God is the model of what it means to be a father and a husband. And you'll remember when you go back to the minor prophets and God called to himself Hosea. Now, if anyone ever asked you, of all the people in the Bible, who do you think received the awesomest calling? You know, like, if God were going to call you to follow him, which prophet, uh, which character in, in the Bible would you say, yeah, I want that kind of calling? Hosea would be your last. Because God calls Hosea to be a living illustration. He tells Hosea, I want you to go find an unfaithful wife. Some, some interpreters think God is telling Hosea, go find a straight-up prostitute. But that misses the point. He's not saying find someone who is sleeping around. He's saying find someone who will sleep around on you. You know it ahead of time, and I want you to find her and make her your wife. And so he does. And what does she do? She hangs out with him for a little while, but she just starts chasing after other men. But Hosea can't help it. He's already loved her, and his heart is already broken. And then God comes and says, do you see how it feels? Now, now I'm going to ask you to do the heart. You thought that was hard? I want you to go after her and redeem her from the marketplace. Bring her out of the prostitution that she's fallen into. Redeem her, clean her up, bring her back into the house. Because that's how I deal with my people every time they cheat on me. So God's model is not looking for the first excuse to do away with us because we would all be dead. God's model is to be the faithful husband even when his bride is unfaithful. So is there an exception to a divorce? Does adultery make a divorce legitimate? Yes. My answer to that is yes. Got to do a little work to get there. My answer to that is yes. I think that's what Mark and Luke are communicating implicitly, and it's hard to argue that that's what Matthew is arguing explicitly. He just straight up says it. But nowhere in the Old Testament or in the New Testament is divorce ever encouraged. In fact, I think the reason why Jesus isn't giving us so much on it is because he doesn't want to play the when do I get to divorce her game. If your thinking is, man, when do I get to divorce her? Like, what, what line does she cross so I can just watch and be like, as soon as she, when her foot's on the line, can I divorce her? When her foot breaks the plane? Like, what is this, the NFL? Like, when is it a touchdown? Because I want out. When is she offsides? So I can just bang, here's the paper. I have pastoral permission. I have biblical permission. If that's your heart, you are in the wrong place. If your desire is for divorce, your desire 
is not in the right place because God's desire is for the union of the marriage. And Jesus is saying, fight for it. You say, where do I see that? I see it where he says it's one flesh and what God has joined, don't separate it. Fight for that union. So, is adultery my out? I think that should be an irrelevant question. Now, Paul tells us if the other person in the marriage is an unbeliever and they just are abandoning you, don't worry about the litigation and going through this whole thing, trying to fight it, be at peace, let them go. But what Paul and Jesus and Moses would say in one unified voice would be, as long as it depends on you, fight for it. Fight for this union. Now, what are the excuses that pop in our heads? Yeah, but this person isn't the person I married 15 years ago. They changed. I've changed. Life changes. Things happen. Okay. What is the logical outcome of that kind of thinking? It is to think of marriage as somewhat optional. Some of you in here are in your dating phase. Are you asking, what kind of questions are you asking about a person that you're dating? Are you asking, is there just a lot of chemistry? Do we get along? Is she hot? Is he hot? How, what percentage of your thing is looks? Because that's going to go away. Oh, we have the same interests. What, were, what was that guy's interest 10 years ago? Xbox? Because 10 years from now, his interests are going to change again. See, we, we marry with these expectations. We, you know, I don't know, the guys play with G.I. Joes and then the girls play with Barbies and we have these expectations of what life looks like and we have this pretend land. We go to movies and we see pretend land on the screen all the time. I was just on Facebook the other day and, and, and someone just posted that their top movie of all time is still Titanic. Why? Because you get lost in this false dream? That's a horrible relationship. That movie is terrible in many ways. I think it's, it just stinks as a movie. But what it communicates about relationship, it's, it's, it's so many lies combined. That is not a glorious relationship. Asterisk, I am not recommending you see that movie. Do not go home and rent that movie because Pastor Lucas mentioned the sermon. It falls on the list of movies I wish I can unwatch. So Jesus' point here applies to us in many different ways. Some of you, you have a divorce in your background and it's a legitimate divorce, you were cheated on, and some of you, I know for a fact, did your best to try to rescue the marriage. The person just wanted out. You did what Paul said to do. Let them go. But you still wrestle with shame or guilt. Be free of that. If you've been in churches before where they just laid the hammer on you because of the divorce, but some other dude just got out of jail for, you know, raping women or something like that. And, well, that was his pre-Christian life. You can't, you know, whatever. But you were a Christian and you ended up with a divorce. Why is the D word the one thing that just sinks everybody? And you were hurt by a church that's on that wavelength. 
just have to realize that there's a lot of people out there that are modern-day Pharisees and jerks. And I'm sorry that you've been hurt that way. I hope here you find a reservoir and an oasis for forgiveness. Some of you have a legitimate divorce in your background, but maybe you were the guilty party. That marriage ended because you ended it. And you need to repent. Some of you in here maybe have illegitimate divorces in your background because both parties were in on it and it was a mess. Just take that to the Lord. What does God offer in exchange for true repentance? Every time, the answer is the same. Forgiveness and mercy and grace. Not only for some sins. Oh, this is divorce. No, sorry. I'll forgive the guy that murdered, but not you. It's a lie. And then for those of you who are not married yet, I'm sure I'm leaving out a bunch of categories, but those of you that aren't married yet, right at the top, move right to the top of your list to find a guy or to find a girl that fears God. Not is he into the same sports. Which teams does he follow? How does he look at me? Does he say the right things? Which of the five love languages does he... Does that guy or does that girl fear God? Because when your marriage gets difficult and you guys are arguing and it feels like it's about to be over, the only thing that's going to save it is when both spouses realize marriage is not a piece of paper to be scratched out with another piece of paper. Marriage is a union that God himself does. And the reason why I don't divorce you on the days where I don't feel like I love you, the reason why I don't divorce you on the days where I feel like I can't stand you, I don't divorce you because I fear the Lord. And we'll get through this. He is faithful. He will teach me how to be just like him. He will teach me what he was teaching Hosea, how to be the faithful husband or the faithful wife in the face of unfaithfulness. And as long as there's that person is not abandoning the marriage, you fight for it. Where it's on you, you try to keep that peace in the bond of marriage. So many other issues, um, and you probably have questions. I know we didn't cover everything. Contact me, and I'd love to talk more about this and unpack Scripture with you. If you're confused about a divorce in the past, something you're struggling with now in your marriage, we're here. And one of the things that breaks our hearts here at this church is when people come to the church when it's too late. Don't come when it's too late. Come when it's a problem. When you guys are still arguing about it, there's still life. It's when people are like, I'm not even arguing anymore. It's over. That's too late. Fighting is good. There's, there's life there. There's something there to be salvaged. When, when you're just past the fighting and you just don't even care anymore, that's a major problem. So come to us. Come to us. Right? We don't have a bunch of expert counselors on staff. We have people that love God's word and want to apply it in a merciful, gracious, but real way in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Every single one of us in here this morning needs it. 
wherever we are, before marriage, in a marriage, in a second or third marriage, whatever it may be, we need your grace, we need your mercy. And we pray that you would align our hearts with yours to be for marriage, for the union, for the bond that you have put together. And on our worst days when we just feel like we just need to get out of this, God, give us the grace to see you and how when we have betrayed you utterly, you didn't want to get out of it, but it cost your son to provide a way to keep us and to hold us fast. So Lord, help us to do that with our marriages as well and display the gospel to the world in marriages that aren't perfect, but marriages that are bound together by a gracious, loving Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.